Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Mindfulness All Day Long by Lama Kathy Wesley. Some days it's great to sit on our meditation seat. Our thoughts can begin to lose their power to oppress us and we can begin to feel lighter inside until we get up and encounter a daily life situation that makes our blood boil. How can we practice mindfulness when we're not on the cushion? A song of the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa can give us a clue. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Tixum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'm really uh, delighted to see everyone this morning, and uh, it's great to see some, uh, some new faces as well as folks that have been visiting us before, so thanks very much. Welcome. Um, I'm wearing my uh, Comfest outfit um, because I had to go uh, yesterday to do Ask a Llama at the, Comf at the KTC Comfest booth, and uh, I was there from four to six. It was fascinating. And uh, I had a great time. And so thanks to all of the volunteers who, um, who came out for uh, Comfest and made it, uh, in, is in the process of still making it a really great event for us. And uh, the, also the folks who came uh, yesterday and chanted with us on the uh, live arts stage every Saturday uh, of Comfest for like, I don't know, the last five or six years, we have held down the opening spot on Saturdays at the live arts stage doing a Chenrezy compassion chant. And so it, we, had, we had a big six people in the audience yesterday, six people, that was probably twice as much as last year. Uh, but we get to, we get to uh, have the, the mantra the compassion mantra, Om Mani Peme Hong, uh, broadcast essentially across one section of Goodale Park, and that always feels good. So I'd like to thank uh, all the folks who helped with all of that, including our musicians. We had music for the first time. Uh, I mean, not first time, but we had, we had like three musicians this time, so it was like, great. Harmonium, who, who would have thunk it? So um, uh, today I'm going to, um, continue a subject that I've been talking about the last few times I've been here, which is shamatha meditation, because shamatha meditation is, um, is um, important right now. Lots of folks are learning shamatha meditation. We use the word shamatha or calm abiding to refer to the very simple breath awareness meditation that everyone is learning as part of mindfulness classes and, and so on. And, and so, but what I wanted to talk about was like beyond mindfulness. What, what, how do we take the practice of meditation beyond simple breath awareness? How do we expand it and how do we deepen it so that it can help us, it can help us with every facet of our life? So in previous talks, I've discussed the ideas uh, of thought transformation where we, one of the side effects of quiet sitting meditation is that we begin to notice our thoughts more, which at first can be a little alarming because we're not used to it. 
We're not used to knowing what we're thinking all the time. And, uh, and of course, the good news is now we know what's on our mind all the time, but now we know what's on our mind all the time and we have to kind of cope with it and the fact that we're, uh, we may not be trash talking ourselves or others, but we may be trash thinking ourselves and others. So we have to find ways to confront that and recognize that we're even doing it. I used to have a friend uh, who was a dyed-in-the-wool hippie. And he used to say, you know, man, he said, how do I know what I think until I hear what I say? <laughs> how do I know what I think till I hear what I say? And, you know, and I said, you know, truth. That's absolute truth, man, truth. Um, but we'd like to try to dial that back a little bit. And so one of, the, one of the key hopes of mindfulness meditation is that we're gonna learn how to engage brain before engaging mouth. As my mom used to say, engage your mouth. Second. As a matter of fact, um, this week I had the opportunity to speak with um, a group of meditators in Santa Monica, California, where we have a Karma Take Some Trolling Center in Los Angeles. And one of the gentlemen uh, shared that he had a big challenge this week because, uh, because he's been meditating for more than 10 years. But somebody got under his skin and he lost his temper. He said, it was kind of ugly, he said. I had to kind of like apologize to the person afterwards and everything. He said, but why does this keep happening? And I, you know, and I tried to explain what I understood of, of mind training from my teachers, which is at first, you only get the warning and then the explosion. But later, you'll get the warning a little earlier. And as you meditate more and more, you'll get the warning earlier. And he said, oh, I got the warning all right. I just couldn't stop. And, uh, and I think that what we have to understand is that meditation gives us the opportunity not just to work with our thoughts and discard in meditation our thoughts, because that's what the practice does. You breathe in, you breathe out, you notice a thought, you label it thinking, you let go of it, and you return to the technique of watching the breath. And in that moment where you drop the thought, that's the power moment of meditation because that's where the, my friend, Dr. Julie, the brain scientist says, all of the new neural pathways get made. When you notice that thought, decide to let it go and return to the technique. That's where you put, we put ourselves in charge of our thoughts. Well, this fellow who said, you know, I, I saw it coming and I still fell into the hole basically of his anger I said, well, what I think would be good would be if you could train deeply in different responses. You could deeply train in different responses. Maybe you have to practice in front of your mirror. <laughs> this particular person who gets on your last raw nerve. Because apparently, this woman reminded him of someone. We don't need to get into all of that, but it reminded him of another person who treated him badly. And so he had an attitude about this woman that he couldn't shake. 
And so I said, well, now what you need to do is when you're not with this person, you're not in the same, when you're not in the same room with them, train in having a different response to her. And there are lots of ways to do that. We, if we can train ourselves just as strongly in a different response as we do as we already have in our habitual response. I mean, because we've got, it's dueling habits, right? Dueling habits. This habit of thinking, I am better than that person, or my, you know, my way or the highway, my way of thinking about myself, my habits of thinking of myself are pretty strong, but now we have to strengthen the opposite habits, which is that other people need to be respected or I need to find a way to hold my center while things are going wild around me. And when I feel bad, I have to find a different route to take and a different way to work with that bad feeling. I have to find a different way to work with it. And this is what meditation gives us the room to do. The poor guy I spoke to last week, he got the room, but he hadn't trained adequately in the opposite thing, you know, the opposite reaction or the positive or different reaction. He hadn't trained quite as heavily as he needed to. So I said, no, well, bad news. I mean, there's bad news in that you lost your temper, but the good news is you lost your temper and figured out how, why you did it. And now you know what you need to do to work with it. And so, um, and so that's why in the Buddhist tradition, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and you remember me mentioning the last time, the Tibetan tradition is one of the only ones that I can find anywhere that uses the mind training discipline of, uh, of Lojong. L-O means mind in uh, Tibetan, and Jong, J-O-N-G, means training. Mind training, Lojong. And so when we do Lojong, we sit in meditation just as though we were doing shamatha, and in fact, we do a little bit of quiet sitting at the beginning. And then we begin to place an intention on our breath as it goes out. Remember last time I was telling you about this, uh, on the out breath, we think, may all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May, so you can even just, um, what's the right word? You can even abbreviate it, sending happiness, like you're sending happiness to others. And you can uh, just do this. There's, a, there's another form of this meditation where on the out-breath you send goodness to all beings, and on the in-breath you remove all of their suffering. But we're not quite there yet. We're going to be talking just simply about the loving-kindness aspect of this mind training. On the out-breath, we think, I, I, give, I give goodness to all beings, which is actually easy to do when you're sitting in your meditation seat and you're not in conflict openly with anybody, you know, right? Much easier when you're sitting on your meditation seat, controlled environment, right? But you might think that's not doing anything, but from the experience of everybody we've trained in this, people do say that it gradually begins to make them feel softer and gentler toward themselves. Because you can actually think of specific people in that crowd of beings that you're sending happiness to. You can actually put yourself in there. And you can actually send yourself goodness, send yourself healing, 
Send yourself um, stability. And by doing this, uh, this, just this very simple practice, which is called metta, M-E-T-T-A, or, or uh, loving kindness, sending on the out-breath goodness to others, we can gradually change our own attitude toward ourselves as well as our attitude toward other people. And uh, so that's one of the benefits of shamatha meditation is that it buys us time to intervene. Now, in this gentleman's example, how would loving kindness intervene in that situation? Well, it might not intervene in the situation. It was, I think, I want to say it was the landlady, but it was that, that kind of, it was like that kind of person. But so we're just going to call her the landlady, whatever her role in this story was. Um, so there's the landlady and um, and her attitudes and you know her situation. So but so this kind of training might not help you in the moment with the landlady, but it will give you a store of resource, meaning that you have strengthened your own self-love self-kindness, self-compassion, and that you feel stronger within yourself. But the other thing is you'll begin to see what makes you suffer in the world actually also makes other people suffer in the world. We all know this because we know what hurts. Somebody says, a, somebody says bad words to us or calls us a name or tells us we're stupid. We get really angry about this. It's, it, it's, it, it hurts, it feels terrible. And sometimes it's really important to us that we get our own way. I don't know if you go, do you go through this? I know I do. I really wanna have my own way because I feel safe when I get my own way. <laughs> Otherwise I don't feel safe. I mean, we're all a little bit that way, right? So my way is very important and getting it is very important. But what happens is that when we try to get our way, often we will not recognize there are other people involved in a situation and that they may have ideas and preferences as well. So, but the good thing about this is that I can look at the landlady and think she is suffering right now. That's the only reason that bad words are coming out of her mouth. What's that bumper sticker? Hurt people hurt people. I kind of like that. That's a hurt people, hurt people. Because the uh, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche says, when, some, when you see someone coming at you in anger, they are not having a good day. <laughs> they are not having a good day. And in fact, um, they are not in control. Remember my friend who said he felt bad because he felt out of control with the lady? They have, I feel that way when I, my temper gets out of control and I'm sure that the landlady probably, well, she may or may not feel that way, but, but the idea is that it hurts. Even no matter what you do with it, it still hurts to feel like you can't get your way and you can't help people, you can't make people understand and you feel unheard and, you know, and uh, we're not gonna say too many bad things about babies here because we've got one in the audience. Um, <laughs> But anybody here have familiarity with two-year-olds? Okay, okay, you guys got some, you got, you're coming, it's coming for you. Um, it's, uh, so this coming attractions for you. Um, 
they, they, because they have, they're pre-verbal, they're, they know how to express certain things, but they don't have words yet. And so they feel the frustration of not being able to communicate along with not getting their way. You know, so it's like they've got two things going on. And if you can see the landlady as a two-year-old, this is extremely helpful because you know they're out of control and they don't have their words. You know, they're out of control and they don't have their words. Now, that doesn't mean that you should stand there and take abuse from someone. That is not what this is about <laughs> because that's a whole different situation. We have, that's why we, that's why we have to learn all of these techniques. We don't just learn one, we learn many techniques because not all situations can be responded to with love and compassion in the, the traditional sense that we do it. But this is why my friend probably would benefit from training specifically with the landlady and specifically sending her happiness when he's not with her. Here, take everything you want. Here, have it all. Because in your imagination, you can do that. And you can feel good about doing it. So the, this kind of training will help. I remember um, my teacher, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, he, he talked about, he said, you know, when you hear about military actions and armies and how people have to train to fight, they have to train in such a way that their, their defensive and offensive action happens automatically. They don't even have to think about it. He said, uh, as, uh, as people who are trying to practice love, compassion, and peace, we have to do the same thing. You know, we have to do the same thing. We have to train just as strongly in love and compassion as others train for war. And I feel that this is so important to us right now because of the way society is going. Uh, I love it in the um, 19th century. I don't think I read this last time, but um, it's kind of interesting. Um, in the 19th century, the author of this book on mind training said, um, since the five kinds of degeneration are steadily advancing, happy situations conducive to Dharma practice are few, and disruptive and adverse conditions proliferate. 19th century. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> I just watched the news. I just watched the news. And here are the, uh, the, the five kinds of degenerations, okay? The times are getting worse. 19th century. Sentient beings are getting worse. Life is getting worse. Emotions are getting worse. And people's outlook is getting worse. That's the five kinds. I mean, I just love it. 19th century. You can't go wrong with reading 19th century books and having them feel relevant. So what mind training does is it gives us some opposite things to do when we don't know what to do. And, um, and the, the, the second thing I believe that we can get from uh, mind training is the capacity to see the other person's viewpoint. The capacity to see that what makes us suffer makes them suffer too, and to realize they're hurting really badly. Now, someone said to me, I have a hard time with conflict. 
And so I, I gave them a little exercise to do that's uh, based on Tonglen, the standing and receiving practice that I described a minute ago, where you breathe out goodness to others and you breathe in and remove their suffering on the in-breath. Well, I said, maybe you're not ready to do that breathing in negativity on the in-breath. Maybe you're not quite ready for that kind of training yet. But why don't you just imagine that you are a window and they're shouting through you because they're, they're in pain. They're screaming in pain and you are the window and they're shouting through you, which I thought was really, it, it worked for me for that a couple times I've had to use it where it's not about me, they're just, they're just shouting in pain. They're calling out in pain, and I just happen to be there. Now, again, this does not mean that we are saying, oh yes, you have to take abuse from other people. That is not what this is. We do have to learn to, to we have to learn um, what my friends of the Christian tradition call discernment. We have to learn discernment to figure out how bad is something and how and how should we respond to the badness and the danger of a situation? And that's something that we don't come out of the, we don't come out of the womb knowing that. We have to figure that out through time. But mind training gives us a place to anchor ourselves in and be so that we can begin to do that practice. So um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention today um, was that we can learn these techniques, but we do need to practice them. So hearing about them today is great because I enjoy sharing these techniques, but it's important for us to practice them. And so um, I'm gonna do a short practice of just metta with you today. And then the next time we get together, I'm going to introduce Tong Len, the sending and receiving practice. And then we're gonna talk about working with emotions and that'll be the, the, the next one in the series. But, um, but I think it's important that you then make a few minutes at the end of your quiet sitting practice every day because many people do have even just a short practice of meditation. I know some folks who are busy, they have children or they have responsibilities and they don't really have time to meditate. Uh, but they can maybe do five minutes when they first wake up in the morning. Remember when Lama Karma was here last year, he said some people, he's a busy dad. And so he said sometimes his only meditation is sitting up in bed right after he woke up and then, and then doing three deep breaths and then breathing out really completely each time and then just watching the mind for a minute or two and looking at the breath or watching the breath with your mind's eye for just a minute or two. He said, that way he says, at least I get it done. I get it in, I get it done, you know, and then slowly you can add to it. And this is a practice you can add. After you've done your uh, quiet sitting, you can just sit for a minute or two and think that on the out breath, you give all beings happiness. Kemper Rinpoche said it spreads out like sunlight. You know how when the sun comes up over the hill, it just floods the valley with light. He said it's like that. Imagine that it's like that. And so if you could add this to your everyday practice, that would be good. 
and, um, and then the next time uh, we'll um, uh, study about Tonglen. So let's do a little practice, and, uh, and then after that, I have, um, I have, remember I was talking to me about my friend who lost his temper? <laughs> I got, a, I got a, a, a song of Milarepa to sing. I'm not gonna sing it because I don't have a melody for it, but um, a little wisdom from the 11th century. Yeah, a little wisdom from the 11th century. So we'll do that in a minute. So uh, let's begin by placing our body in the posture of meditation. If you're sitting in a chair, feet flat on the floor, hands palm downward on the legs. If you're sitting on a cushion, you can sit in any one of the postures that's comfortable. Hands palm downward on the legs. And we begin by fostering the intention to meditate for the benefit of ourselves and others. You can begin with one deep breath. Breathe out. And then let the breath come and go naturally following the breath in and out with your attention. We'll do that for a minute or so. Now for the, uh, the um, metta meditation. Think that in front of you are arrayed all of the beings of the world. You can use your imagination. Your imagination can indeed accommodate all the beings in the world. Imagine they're there in front of you. If you feel you need a little extra love and compassion, you can place yourself in front of the group. Or if you have someone you're in conflict right now, put them front and center in the group. And now as you breathe out, think that you give uh, all of your love and goodness to yourself and all those beings on the out breath.
after having meditated for a few moments like this, you let go of the visualization and it disappears. And you rest your mind quietly in itself for a moment. Okay, that's a, that's a brief metta meditation. Um, I'm going to do questions for about 10 minutes uh, now, and then after that I'll, I'll give you uh, the, the wisdom of the 11th century about, about how to recognize what's going on in your mind. But before that, let's see if anybody has questions, thoughts, recent reactions, curiosities. We have two microphones on either side. So feel welcome to go up and ask. Yeah, hello. Hi. Um, we were talking about this a little bit in the uh, break in between, but I guess relating to what you were talking about, wanted to ask, do you think, or has it been said, or um, that enlightenment means never losing your temper? temper again? That's a really great question. The questioner is asking if enlightenment means never losing your temper again. Um, yeah, pretty much. But, um, yeah, pretty much. But, um, but here's the thing. Um, there's many different levels of this. Uh, in, the, in the Mahayana Sutras, the Buddha's teachings on the Mahayana, he said that there are 10 different levels of this kind of, awake, of awakening, starting with the, the, what they call the path of seeing, where you see mind's nature, and it's a decisive moment, and you don't return to being ordinary after that. However, when you're not meditating, you'll still have problems with mental afflictions, but you'll be it will be a lot quicker to, you understand what I'm saying, they'll be a lot quicker to recover from them. Uh, in fact, I actually observed um, a great teacher in a moment of, of, of anger, what appeared to me to be anger, and they said something sharp, and then they said, it's okay, it's gone now. And we're like, oh. <laughs> how do you do that? I mean, I actually observed it. It's amazing, you know, because in, and, I mean, there was it was all gone. He he said a couple of sharp things, and then then he then he put his hands up and said, "It's over now. It's okay. Everything's fine." Because I, so I feel like that I, that teacher may have been one of these people on the first level of awakening when they're not meditating then. But I think that that's, tr that's true in some ways for even us trainees, bodhisattvas in training, you know. Even us trainees will still get angry, like my friend, you know, who got angry with his landlady. But we'll recover a lot more quickly 
because there's the, the moment of anger, but then there's all the regret and recrimination and like, oh, I shouldn't have done that or oh, I should have done this. And you kind of go down another hole, you know, of self-dislike or whatever. Does that make sense? And so um, I think it's not that you never get angry again, but that you deal with it a lot better. Now, what I will say is that as you go up through these levels, um, it, it is obvious that there are some people who remain unperturbed because um, the brain studies that they did at the University of Wisconsin, um, I participated in those, but not in this particular study. But um, everybody knows what the limbic system of the body, it's like, a, it's, like an autom it's like the body is on automatic. And we feel a, a, a self, we feel a reflex of self-protection such that when we hear a loud sound, we startle, we get startled. And they say that that moment of being startled is totally out of our control. It's just part of our wiring as human beings. Well, great meditators of that level, they don't jump. They play loud sounds to them suddenly. Nothing happens. They, their brain activity doesn't even change. And so that tells us that there's something that is deep happening, that is uh, powerful that's happening, um, but I can't explain it. Um. So losing your temp temper, does that mean, in this instance, losing control of your reactions, or is it being angry at all? Because I guess the reason why I'm thinking of that is yeah. I, I've, I didn't learn it through meditation. I actually learned it through reading Bruce Lee when I was a kid, how to not get startled when loud things would happen or things like that. I may need you to walk a little closer to the oh, microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah sorry um, about that. But, you know, being going to the shows, the music shows that I go to, I'll unfortunately run into neo-Nazis sometime. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to hit them when I was younger. Now I'll tell them that they're not welcome pretty mm -hmm. clearly. And I'm not sure, and I never really feel any regret about that. I don't know if that counts as losing my temper though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I'm a big believer in not tolerating intolerance. And that's usually where that comes from. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if that's, yeah. I get this kind of thing where it's like, what would Buddha think about what I just said mm -hmm. to this person? Right. You know, I really think it's wise that you're having this conversation. I really think that there's some inner wisdom in you at work that you are asking these questions. I think that, I mean, really, because you're beginning to wonder what is, um, what's constructive thinking and action for yourself. You're beginning to ask yourself that question. As you said, when you were younger, you would strike them, and that would, you know, that would bring its own thing. And so from the Buddhist point of view, anything that we do think or say out of this idea that we are superior to others and we want to beat them, we want to fight them, you know, we, we hate them, we, you know, we, we can't, intolerant of intolerance, you know, we may think we're being justified and and carrying out justice, but what happens is this, that there is some subtle damage going uh, on inside of us where we are overcoming our natural impulse to protect life. 
which, you know, which is what happens when people go into the training in the army. They, they have to get them over the natural human impulse to with, with, withhold from not harm people. They have to get them past that in order to kill an enemy. But my, one of my teachers said to me one time, he said, you know, he says, I know it's training and I know that they have to do it and we have to have armies. He said, but I worry for the psyche of these people. He said, I really worry for them. Because he said they, they need to do a lot of positive work with themselves in order to repair. Because what happens when we hurt others is that we create inside ourselves like an atmosphere where hurt can come to us. Some people might call it karma. Um, it's not that, but it can happen like that. And so when, when we do something a lot, we become different. And if you're questioning who you were back in those days, that's actually probably a good thing because there are better, smarter ways to work with intolerance than, than taking up arms. But let's see, but let's see. There's only one way to find out and that's to try the different methods, right? Yeah, because um, there is a subtle damage that happens to, to us when we are unbridled in our responses. Uh, we encourage those responses in ourselves over and over again. So I'm, I'm thinking you're asking all the right questions. You're asking all the right questions. And then one other thing to say, and that is that my understanding, I've never been an enlightened being. I don't even play one on TV. <laughs> I've never been an enlightened being, so I don't know what they experience. But if some of my teachers are any, um, or any uh, example, they may, it's not that they become insensitive. It's not that they become like stones. They just become wise to the ways of the world. They're very wise to the ways of the world. And they're very wise to the need to be um, balanced in a moment of conflict. A lot of my friends who practice martial arts talk about this idea of being solid in a moment of conflict and being grounded. And I feel like that's something that we can do. We can train to do that. And when I think about all of the documentaries that I saw about all of the great civil rights movements around the world, how the training, how all the people were trained to, to not react in anger, of that when they were confronted with uh, violent speech and action. It's really, really powerful. Think about what Gandhi did. Think about what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King did. Think about all those people who they trained in being mountains. In my boxing gym, you'd be happy to see, we walk in and there's a huge picture of Gandhi and a huge picture of MLK. On where, the very, where? In my boxing gym, in the back wall. Where is the, this? This is at uh, Thompson. So you have Buster Douglas sitting in the middle, and you have Gandhi, huge picture of Gandhi, huge picture of MLK. That's amazing. No other pictures anywhere near that big. That's amazing. So it's funny you just said those two yeah. names. Well, I'm glad we had this conversation. Yeah, this is just the beginning of a conversation. It's not the oh, end, sure. you know, yeah. So thank you, yeah. Taking responsibility, hey. <laughs> yeah, I get it. 
<laughs> I get you. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hey. Um, you mentioned somebody saying from the 18th century, century worrying about the state of things. I don't know if you know that Socrates, like around 400 BC, was lamenting about children loving luxury, that they have bad manners, contempt for authority, just talking about tyrants. Um, so when I feel like I'm in the worst time now, Socrates. <laughs> 400 BC. 400 BC, so before Jesus even, so yes. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for that, that's great. Good questions this morning, guys. Yeah. I am. Uh, oh, thank you. Hi there. I'm, uh, so, you made the point several times that when we can respond with compassion or love instead of anger, um, that doesn't mean that we're letting ourselves be a pushover. Right. And I guess I, I find myself trying to practice these teachings, but I'm still very much at the beginning. And I, I often, I'm not sure if I'm maybe pushing myself too far, but after the fact, I find that I'm kind of hurt by how much I let the other person take advantage of me or get away oh, with, or yeah. I wish that I had maybe yeah. responded in some other way. Um, I don't, whatever that might've looked like, maybe it would've just looked like walking away. Um, but I guess, do you have any advice about how to tell when you're in the middle of it if, you know, I mean, certainly you should never react in anger or aggressively, but maybe just sitting there and taking it isn't, isn't always the best idea. Yeah, I, and you know, I re again, every, you're asking all the right questions. And I think that uh, there, there are plenty of people in this room who could speak to that. And um, so I will invite them if they'd like to come and share, they can come and share about that. Uh, from, uh, from my experience of the teachings that I've received from Kemper Ibache. He said, um, when uh, someone is coming at you aggressively, he said, of course, it's best, he said the best thing to do is to evade, evade the confrontation. And um, if you can, uh, if someone is coming at you with harmful aggression, you know, he said, uh, take evasive action if you can. And if you cannot, he said, you have to try to stop the person from harming you in whatever way you can. And he said, you have to accept that, the, that there may be consequences to all of that. And, but in terms of knowing, I think everybody knows their, um, they, everybody knows, they know how, they know where their, their breaking point is. I think everybody knows this. And, um, and Kemp Ribache said, uh, one way is that you begin to feel, you know, anger yourself that you may not be able to control. You may feel like my friend, it was kind of like the red mist was descending, you know, but he, and he couldn't, and he couldn't disengage because if he had disengaged, that might have prevented the confrontation with the landlady. But it, he didn't think it was an option. So sometimes we may have to run through scenarios in our mind ahead of time. Kempo Karthorimbache used to say, if you're going into a conversation with a person who you know is going to be co confrontational, 
or uh, conflict, you know, conflict will arise. He said, go through it in your mind first. You go through, sit when you're not with the person, just go through, okay, what do they usually say? What do I usually say? Try, you know, try to tell yourself that today this person's not going to get to me. He said, sometimes you actually have to give yourself a pep talk before you go into one of these and then be willing to disengage when, you know, if it's possible. But there's a difference between dangerous harm coming at you and going into a, a conflict with the landlady. It's, it's still a level, a level of, of difficulty that's beyond most of us is to, you know, to work with physical confrontation where someone's trying to harm you. It's, but, uh, but I think being able to watch your mind and see when it's coming up and then if you, because pretty quickly you're gonna be able to recognize like this is more than I can handle and sometimes habit will make us push forward at that moment, because we were talking about that a minute ago. When you get a confrontation, sometimes your habit is to push forward into that confrontation, but when that may not always be the best advice. <laughs> you know, so sometimes the, the disengagement is where the, is where the solution is. But I'm, I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. And then again, when you're not with the person you, you have conflict with, doing this um, sending of goodness to them when you're not with them. Mm -hmm. Because what it, what it is is that that person represents someone to you in your mind. That, that person, there's like a part of that person that's you. And one Lama came to see us in three-year retreat. I don't know if you know what three-year retreat is, but we... You put like 15, uh, 10, 15 people in a, in a house together and there's no cameras like Big Brother. <laughs> but we do everything that they do in Big Brother. Anyhow, uh, but we're trying to be Dharma people at the same time. Anyway, we're not, anyway, uh, we all have to finish the retreat. That's a joke. We, of course, are not all like that, but we do have neuroses and they do get, they do get inflamed. But um, one Lama came in and said, um, look, if somebody else's behavior bothers you, it's because you've got just a little bit of that inside you, a little bit of that inside you, and you just can't take it. You can't stand it. You know, you've got a little bit of that in you, and you just can't take it. And um, it's kind of like my guys in 12 steps say, you spot it, you got it, you know? And so he reminded us that we have to uh, try to take care of ourselves and you know, I don't know if this is helpful. Yeah, wonderful, thank you. Yeah, okay, yeah. Time for one more, yes. Uh-huh. Hey. Oh yes, we're gonna have to bend uh, the uh, microphone down for you there, Julia. Hi, Lama Kathy, I'd like to speak to that a bit. We deal a lot with very angry children, very angry adolescents stressed out and neurotic parents. Oh, in, in your, in your in professional pro, in practice. In my mundane practice. Mm -hmm. And there's two things, there's three things that we talk about. We talk about the J-turn of anger. If you can catch it, be aware of it. As it makes the turn, you wanna catch it before you make the turn. The second thing is when you're talking to a parent and they're being very intimidating, if you just start using active reflection. Oh, I hear you saying this. I hear you saying 
this that gives you time to think mm -hmm. and they all of a sudden know you're hearing them and the last thing is scripts so we teach our children like when you have a, a bully you have a teacher you're uncomfortable again just like you were saying is visualize it but give yourself a script because in the moment you're not going to be able to think mm -hmm. and so i was hope that those three techniques of the and particularly the reflective active listening is like a, a magic bullet to make people most people will stop when they think they're being heard mm -hmm. thank you that's I, I knew i knew there was something out there i knew thank you very much well, uh, because of time, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll stop the questions for here, and, uh, but uh, a fantastic conversation, and thank you, you know, thanks to everybody for asking your questions today. Um, and I hope this is helpful and that uh, you'll be able to go home uh, and uh, practice a little uh, of this um, sending love and compassion to yourself uh, this week and uh, sending love and compassion to others. Um, but I wanted to share this song of Milarepa because it actually, uh, it actually uh, is connected to the previous class I taught. Isn't that always the way you teach a class and then suddenly you go, wow, this would have been an awesome, an awesome illustration for that class I just already did. So we'll just call this an addendum to the previous class. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, know that there are four traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. There are four. And uh, there's the oldest one, which is interestingly enough called the Old Ones or Nyingma, the uh, lineage of the spoken word or Ka Ju, which is the lineage we belong to. Then there's the, um, the uh, Sakya, the Yellow Earth School, because that's where their monastery is located. And then the Geluk, the Virtuous Ones, uh, that's the uh, final of the four that formed. And so each tradition has its own great masters. Each of these four traditions has its own great masters. And we learn and follow their teachings. Well, in the Kaju tradition, there are uh, many uh, great masters, but the ones we look up to the most are Tilopa, the first master of Mahamudra from the, I believe he lived in the 900s. And then uh, his student, Naropa, another Indian master. Then the Tibetan teacher, Marpa, and then, and then Marpa's student, Milarepa. Milarepa was um, he was a person who fell into um, bad circumstances when his, um, when his wealthy family was plunged into poverty by his father's death. He, was he and his mother and sister were taken in by their uncle and aunt, who then enslaved them and made them, uh, made them ser servants of the house. Milarepa's mother was... Uh, incredibly angry and wanted revenge on the women, on the, the woman and man who had enslaved them. And so she sent her son, Milarepa, to learn black magic. And when he came back from learning black magic, he was very powerful and he caused a, a hailstorm to come down on the wedding party of one of the children. And he killed uh, 35 people. 
And, uh, and so then he was run out of town. And in fact, they were threatening him with death. And then he realized that he had committed so many atrocities in the name of revenge that he himself would end up in hell after his death. And so fearful of hell, he went looking for a teacher who could give him practices to purify his negative karma. And that's when he met Marpa. And Marpa uh, at first would not teach him and made him undergo like nine different trials. I mean, it was, uh, it was very difficult. But eventually Milarepa got the teachings from Marpa and went to live in caves for the remainder of his life. And he taught through spontaneously composed poetry. He would, he would spontaneously compose poetry. And that was how he taught Dharma. People, and he would actually sing these uh, spontaneously generated poems. And people would memorize them. And after his death, people began writing them down. And eventually, the life of Milarepa was written. And eventually after that, the 100,000 songs of Milarepa were, was written. And, uh, and so his poetry continues to um, inspire us today. Milarepa, because he lived as a wandering yogi in the wilderness, loved the yogi life. He loved being carefree and not having a family and not having responsibilities and living just with nature and uh, so forth. We might have called him a hippie in the old days. But he actually had accomplished enlightenment. He had actually accomplished enlightenment. And um, Oh, that's a whole nother story. When the bandits came to visit him and they, they thought he was just a sack of bones and they bounced him up and down and stuff like that. Anyhow, how he responded to them was very interesting. But we won't get into that today. So um, he was, um, he often got visits from non-human beings because, you know, there's a lot of spirits in Tibet. And uh, there's a story told about how this one, uh, group of uh, goddesses, spirits, local earth spirits came to see him. You know, they circumnambulated him and said, hey, we got problems, can you help? And she basically, uh, the, the woman who was the uh, head of this group said, you know, Milarepa, we are ignorant, sentient beings with mental afflictions firmly entrenched in our minds. Please teach us a method on which to rely for remedying this. So he's gonna tell these, um, these um, goddesses how to watch their minds. They said, how can we meditate all the time? You know, because we're busy. <laughs> and we're busy, you know, we're busy people. And, you know, we're busy being goddesses. And, you know, we don't have a lot of time to meditate. So, like, how do we bring meditation into our everyday life is essentially their question. So here he goes. I bow at the feet of my teacher, Marpa, who is so kind. Marpa, grant your blessings that remedies for these states of mind arise well in my mind stream. You goddesses who are endowed with faith, if you want to practice in a continual way, inside, meditate with the concentration of shamatha, calm abiding, to abandon a lot of outer activity is one great ornament. Outside, 
stably take hold of your antidotes, which we were just talking about, right? Outside, stably take hold of your antidotes to relax body and speech is a great ornament. In other words, not reacting. Continuously take the seat of mindfulness. To have few affairs is one great ornament. When adverse conditions give the mind difficulty, be on the lookout for the arising of aggression. So now he's gonna tell you how to keep your eye out. When adverse conditions give the mind difficulty, be on the lookout for the arising of your own aggression. When encountering money or things of desire, be on the lookout for the arising of attachment. When the weapons of harsh speech fall upon you, be on the lookout for your ears' delusion. When accompanying friends who you think are equal to yourself, be on the lookout for the arising of jealousy. When praise and honor come your way, be on the lookout for the arousing of pride. At all times and in every way, tame the evil demons within your own mind stream. Should a hundred learned and righteous ones speak, there would be no better advice than this. Now practice with joy in meditation. I love Milarepa. He's just, he just lays it out, right? Practice with joy in meditation. So we may feel defeated by our mental afflictions. And I think we've talked about that feeling of being defeated. But what he's saying is the fact that you notice them is powerful. The fact that even if you can't stop them, noticing them is powerful. And it gives you a way to gain a foothold against our worst habits. So just noticing is power. And so we can begin to work with that. So um, I want to, again, thank you uh, for letting me give like last time's talk again. It's just such a good thing, you know. If you want to if you want to meditate all the time, watch your mind, and and see all of these mental afflictions arising within your mind. And you know, if you want to meditate all the time, that's how you do it. <laughs> okay, let's sit quietly and dedicate our, our goodness. We dedicate the goodness of this session to the, the liberation from all forms of bondage, the liberation of all sentient beings from suffering. And may we come to uh, Buddhahood and may we benefit all sentient beings. Through this merit, may all achieve the omniscience of Buddhahood. May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, May we free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Texum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week 
for another Dharma Talk.